Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 10 this morning. Numbers chapter 10. Israel was not like the other nations, but it wasn't because of anything that Israel had done. It was because God had chosen them to be his special people. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the reason that Israel was such a great nation and why they were so distinct in contrast to the, the pagan nations, why they were blessed is because God had chosen them. And when God chooses to set his love on someone, then he will be steadfast in that love. He will continue to pursue that person or that nation. And that we, that's what we've seen from the time of the Exodus on for Israel, that God has been faithful to deliver them and to be in their presence. He powerfully delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. He led them with the glory cloud out of Egypt. He brought them safely through the Red Sea. He graciously gave them the law so that they wouldn't have to guess at what God commands. The law of Moses was filled with clear instruction and great and precious promises. And the point of the law was to show Israel how they could come to God and to show them that they couldn't fulfill the law in order to come to God, that they had to rely on God's promises. And so far in Numbers, we've seen nothing but blessing from God and faithfulness from the people. The people have been working to get the tabernacle and its furnishings all in place. They've brought sacrifices. They've set up their camp according to God's instructions. And last time we saw that, that they continued the memorial of the Passover in order to remember the deliverance of God for, from Egypt. And so really we have this great relationship of God and the people of Israel. And the symbol of God's presence is clearly visible among them all. God is with them. With this glory cloud, God wants them to know that He is their God and that He is their leader. So that whenever the cloud moves, they move. And whatever it rests, they rest. And so here in chapter 10, they're about to set out on this trip. It's going to take them 40 years. They don't know that at the time, but it's going to take them... Uh, 40 years to, to get to the promised land. And Israel here sets out with no hint of turning away from God. No hint of fear of the nations and of the enemies because God is with them. God is in their midst. God is leading them and His promises are true. And Israel is doing it God's way. Now we know from the rest of the story, really beginning in chapter 11, that it doesn't stay that way, but for now, all is good. We have God happily leading them and Israel happily following God. So I'm going to read beginning in verse 11. Verses 1 through 10 uh, we're going to cover here when we, when we get to the text. But, but I want to begin with verse 11 and read down through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Now in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. 
And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. The standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to their army, set out first with Nashon, the son of Amminadab, over its army, and Nethanel, the son of Zuar, over the tribal armies of the sons of Issachar, and Eliab, the son of Helon, over the tribal army of the sons of Zebulun. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who were carrying the tabernacle, set out. Next, the standard of the camp of Reuben, according to their armies, set out with Elizur, the son of Shadir, over its army, and Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai, over the tribal armies, army of the sons of Simeon, and Eliasaph, the son of Deul, was over the tribal army of the sons of Gad. Then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy objects, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. Next, the standard of the camp of the sons of Ephraim, according to their armies, was set out with Elishama, son of Aminahud, Amihud, over its army, and Gamaliel, the son of Badazer, over the tribal army of the sons of Manasseh, and Abaddon, the son of Gideoni, over the tribal army of the sons of Benjamin. Then the standard of the camp of the sons of Dan, Dan, according to their armies, which formed the rear guard for all the camps set out, with Ahiazer, the son of Amishadai, over its army, and Pagiel, the son of Akron, over the tribal army of the sons of Asher, and Ahir, the son of Enon, over the tribal army of the sons of Naphtali. This was the order of march of the sons of Israel by their armies as they set out. Then Moses said to Hobab, the son of Reu, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do you good. For the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and relatives. Then he said, Please do not leave us, inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be. If you go with us, that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days, to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. Here in in Numbers chapter 10, we see the orderly movement of God's people with him. That That this orderly movement of God's people with him as their leader is a beautiful thing. This is how it is supposed to supposed to be that God has them as their people and they have God as their God. They are willing to follow him. God is willing to lead them. And so that's what this whole text is about. The beginning here in verses one through ten is the sound of orderly movement. At the end of chapter nine, we saw uh, that the glory cloud was kind of a GPS for Israel, that wherever it led them, they would follow. And when they stopped, it stopped. Or or when the cloud stopped, they stopped. But here, in verses 1 through 10, we get a little bit more detail about how this works. Because if the cloud moved and you have 2 million people, 600,000 fighting men, potentially 2 million people, plus all of their animals, some of them, uh, some of the people being just 
children and some being old. And, and um, how is this all going to happen? Because if you have two million people trying to move in an orderly way, how is it going to happen? If there's no order, there's going to be chaos. And so God established a way for there to be orderly movement. So in verses 1 through 10, we see the sound of orderly movement. And, and the way that God was going to make this movement begin was on, at the sound of a trumpet. So God had Moses make two silver trumpets. Notice the purpose of these trumpets um, in verse 2. Make yourself two trumpets of silver. Of hammered work you shall make them. So what is the purpose of these, God? God gives the answer in the second part of verse 2. And you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camps set out. So initially he lists two primary purposes for the silver trumpets. One, to call an assembly. And then two, to set out on their journey. And... Um, so the first purpose is seen in verses 3 and 4, to summon the congregation. And in verse 3, he says, When both trumpets are blown, everyone assembles. When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves uh, to you at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So here, two trumpet blasts, they are to... They are to um, oh, I'm sorry, when they, when they hear yeah, both trumpets blown, then, then they are to, to assemble. When they hear only one, or when they hear only one blast... Verse 4, Then the leaders, the, head, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall assemble before you. So when they hear both of them blast, everyone assembles. When they only hear one blast, then the leaders assemble only. This is a way for there to be order. When people are about their business around the camp, doing various things, preparing meals, whatever, then when they hear those trumpets, they were to gather together, whether as leaders or as a whole congregation. The second purpose as stated in verse 2, is, is described for us in verses 5 through 7, and that is to lead the people out in an orderly fashion. And here, the trumpet's not going to be a single blast or a double blast. Instead, it's going to be some kind of alarm that sounded. That the trumpets are used as some kind of alarm so that when that happens, then the first group of, of tribes are to, to leave. The eastern camps are to set out, verse 5. But when you blow an alarm, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. And then, verse 6, when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are pitched on the south side shall blow out, shall, shall set out. So, the assembly is called when, when a single trumpet is blown. The, the, uh, when, it, when both trumpets are blown, the leaders assemble when only one is blown. And then there's some kind of alarm that sets these, these various tribes out in, in motion. And uh, apparently it's some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, uh, noise that was made by the trumpet that, that the people would have to come up with. This is going to be our alarm sound, so get used to this sound. When you hear this, this means the eastern tribes need to start setting out. Verse 8, the priests were responsible to lead this charge. Priestly sons of Aaron, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. So there are the first two reasons, to summon the congregation and to lead the people in an orderly fashion. But there's a third reason that's listed in verse 9. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. So here the, the trumpets are used during a time of battle when they're being attacked or when they're about to attack an enemy. And it was a way of kind of summoning God's help 
Notice the last part of the verse. That you may be remembered before the Lord and be saved from your enemies. It was almost as if it's a plea to God to come to their aid. And so they, they called out with these trumpets for help. And the, the fourth purpose is listed in verse 10. The trumpets were used during the offering of sacrifices. Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts. And on the first day, days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And they shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So similar in times of battle, uh, Israel would sound the trumpets to God to acknowledge their dependence on him during a time of sacrifice. So that whenever those trumpets were sounded, it would remind the people that God was with them. Right? The, the first reason we saw was to summon the congregation. It was to summon them to show that God is among them in their assembly. The second is to lead them in Israel to show that God is their leader. The third is that God would protect them, right? They're going in a time of battle. They call out to God with these trumpets. And then the fourth is that God is willing to reconcile with them through these sacrifices. So that every time they heard these trumpets, it would remind them of God's presence and His leadership and His protection and His willingness to reconcile with them. So the, the sound of orderly movement begins with these trumpets. The sequence of orderly movement is seen in verses 11 through 28. Verse 11 tells us that it happens on the second year, the, the very first movement, out from Sinai. Remember, when they cross the Red Sea, they come to Sinai, get the law, and they stay there for 11 months. Um, and this, this particularly, the first time that they set out was on the second year, the second month, on the 20th day, which is only a week after the second Passover. Do you remember from last week? They had the first Passover, which was on the first day of the 14th month. But some people couldn't come to that because they were unclean. And so God mercifully allowed them to have a second Passover for those who couldn't come. Only for those reasons. You couldn't just say, well, you know, they didn't want to participate in this first one. No, only if you're unclean or you're out of town for some legitimate reason. And you could come to the second Passover, which was one month later on the second month on the 14th day. Here we have the 20th day. So they have just observed this Passover, which reminds them of the memorial. It is a memorial to remind them of what God had done for them. He had delivered them out from, from bondage, from slavery, through the blood of the Lamb. And so um, Israel sets out on the journey for the very first time in verses 12 through 28. They hear the trumpet blasts and the procession begins. And the order of the troops here is east, south, west, and north. So do you remember the picture? I, I, was, I meant to have it on the, the, the slideshow here for you, but I don't have it. So just have the picture in your mind. But remember, you have God at the center of the camp in the tabernacle with the glory cloud kind of coming up from that. Immediately around the tabernacle was who? Well, the priest, right? Just to the, to the east side of the door where the door was open, the door to the tabernacle was open. Those were the priests, Aaron and his sons. And then you had... Uh, I forget the order, but you had Merari and Gershon and the Kohathites basically around the, the inner part of the tabernacle. Then outside of that, you had the 12 tribes, right? On the eastern side, you had these first three tribes, verses 14, 15, and 16, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Those are on the eastern side of, of the, um, the tabernacle. Then to the south, you had Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, verses 18, 19, and 20. And then to the west of the tabernacle, you had 
the western tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And then to the north, you had Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And what God's doing here is he's giving them the specific instructions as to how they're going to come out. And what's interesting is that God does this in an orderly fashion, just like he did the offerings. Remember in chapter 7, where each of the tribes had to come and give of their offerings to, um, it was the same exact offering for each tribe, but it was to the priests so that they could sacrifice these either immediately or over time. It's not clear from the text what they did. But, but whatever the case, it came in this order. The eastern tribes first. Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. Then the southern tribes. Remember, they did one, for each, one tribe for each day. Judah on the first day. Then Issachar. Then Zebulun. And so on. Then you move to the southern tribes. And so that order that you have in Numbers chapter 7 and all the way back to Numbers chapter 2 is the same order that's used here for their procession as they're going out on their, their trip. So now we have this orderly movement of God's people. It's not just like You've seen some of those videos from India or China where they, they don't really have lines like we do. They just kind of, it's like water. You know, it just goes to wherever there's a spot. They fill it in. And, and like we in America, you know, we kind of have lines. We expect people to stay in line. Except for on Black Friday, it get a little bit ugly. But, but in general, you know, we have lines. But, but it wasn't like the China or India type movement when they go to the DMV. Okay, where they just kind of all pile in wherever there's an opening and try to get to the front. Uh, it was Instead, it was, it was more like, I'm not trying to, to sanctify our lines in America. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I'm trying to say that there is some order to it. They don't just kind of just uh, disperse everybody at the same time and, and people are walking over each other and things like that. No, there's an orderly movement according to the trumpet blast, according to how God had, had put it together. So you have the sound of orderly movement, the support or the sequence of orderly movement. And then thirdly, the support of orderly movement is found in verses 29 through 32. In order for Israel to, to find some consistency with their campsite, they needed to find a good location. And, of course, God was going to be the one through the glory cloud directing them to a general location, but it seems that they had some leeway as to where exactly they would set up their camp. You know, whether it would be on partial, partial, partially flat terrain and partially some hilly terrain, what, what exactly would they do, depending on where they were? And Moses knew of one person who was especially good at this, and it was his brother-in-law named Hobab. Hobab was a son of Reu, probably Jethro is his other name, but, but Hobab is his Midianite wife's brother, and he was used to the terrain there in, in uh, Sinai and, and um, in Kadesh Barnea and that area. So he would know what the best place to camp was for two million people, potentially, and all their animals so that they had a place to graze. And so if he was going to do this, then, then uh, Moses would need him to come along. But with Hobab being a Midianite, he wasn't too interested, and so Moses pleads with him to come and and initially, Hobab declines, and so Moses offers one of the greatest resources that he has. Notice in, in verse 29. He says, We are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. So, talking about the promised land. Come with us, and we will do you good, for the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But Hobab declined in verse 30. And then verse 31 um, uh, 
Moses says, please do not leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be if you go with us that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. Now, how can Moses make that kind of a promise? Moses is offering one of the greatest resources that Israel has, which is the blessing of God. And he's saying, I'm going to disperse or allow you to enjoy some of that blessing from God yourself. How can he say that? I think Moses is committed to the same promise that Abraham had received back in Genesis chapter 12, which is, I will bless those who what? Bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So Hobab, here you go. God has promised. And I believe that if you bless us by being our eyes, finding our campsite in the best way that you can, then I can assure you that you will have God's blessing. Kind of like Laban did, right? When, when he took in uh, Jacob for a time. He just had so much riches. And Laban recognized that after time that his flocks had grown because Jacob was with him. And he knew that if Jacob left, that he, his blessing would also leave. Which is, in fact, what happened. Um, and, and so God has been doing this throughout history. To those who bless Israel, God blesses. And so Moses appeals to him. Now the text doesn't tell us how Hobab responds after Moses pleads with him a second time. But apparently from Judges chapter 1, Hobab's family settles down in the promised land with Moses. So it seems to me that Hobab responds affirmatively saying, okay, I'll do it. And he actually receives a portion of the land. So the support, we have the, we have the, uh, the sound of orderly movement, the sequence, the support, and then I had to have another S, so I used star. I would have rather used master, but I had to, had to do an S there. The star of orderly movement in this capital there, so it's talking about God. Verses 33 through 36. The guiding star of their orderly movement was God, as it was symbolized in the glory cloud. The glory cloud was evidence that God was with them. The glory cloud was evidence that God was leading them. The glory cloud was evidence that God was protecting them. And that's what we should see in these verses. God is with them, He's leading them, and He's protecting them. So, verse 33, they set out from the mount, that's talking about Sinai, where they received the law, and they had been for 11 months, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. So God is among you and God is leading you. That's what they needed to remember. And then verse 35, Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Moses recognized that they were not just going to be able to take a beeline from Sinai to the promised land without any conflict at all. Right? They were going through enemy territory. And they were going to have to dispossess a people, the Canaanites. Right? The people who were living in that land. So they needed God not only to lead them and to be among them, but also to protect them. And that's what he says here. So that when it goes out, God, let your enemies be scattered. Like a plow through snow, God, make the pathway clear for us. And then when it rested, they wanted to be reminded again that God was in their midst. Notice verse 36. When it came to rest, Moses said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So return from you are out in the front leading us and protecting us. Now return back to the center of the camp apparently so that we can know that you are in our midst. So every time it would go out, this was Moses' uh, this was Moses' habit. 
his, his routine. And when he would go out, let your enemies be scattered, God. You are our protector, our leader. We're going to follow you. When it came to arrest, God, come back in our midst to, our, to the myriad thousands of people who need you. And so we have the, the star. The guiding star of orderly movement is God. So let's uh, think about a few principles here as we conclude. Number one, where God is specific, we must obey without a thought. And I'm going to put these two together just so we can think about them together. Where God is not specific, we are free to be creative. So where God is specific, we must obey without a thought. Where God gave specific details to Israel as to how the tabernacle would be set up. He gave specific details about the objects that were to be included in the tabernacle, how they were supposed to be made, what materials they were made of. He gave specific details about who could enter the temple, how they would be arranged around the camp. In this passage, he gives specific details for how the procession would work, that it would happen at the sound of a trumpet and that it would happen in an orderly way, that they would go according to these to this uh, order that was given to them. So he gave specific details for them as to how the procession would go and to when they would camp. That when, when the glory cloud would stop, they would stop. And they would set up camp there for a time. So when God is specific, they, they didn't even have to think about it. They just obeyed. Just do what God says. But God has allowed for the people to have some input in the creativity of the matter. So that where God is not specific, they are free to be creative. For example, the text doesn't give them any specific notes that they were supposed to play on the trumpet. So what should we play when we sound the trumpet? What should we play when we sound the alarm? Should it be an A? Should it be an F? Should it be an H? That was for you non-music types. Okay, that was a joke. Um, he didn't give them the length of time that each blast should last. right? He didn't say, do this for three seconds. There seems to be some leeway that the people have a general instruction of what they're supposed to do, and then for the specifics, they are left for themselves. How about for the campsite? You know, for the campsite, they were supposed to line up and according, to their, according to the order, but he didn't give the exact boundaries of the camp. He didn't tell them exactly where they should lay down their individual tents. Remember, we're talking about two million people potentially here. So within each tribe, you have hundreds of thousands of people. So how does each family set up their camp? Where are they in relation to the others? And and so it seems to be that God gives some some liberty, some creativity, lends some creativity to the people to, to make choice for themselves. And I think in a similar way, God has done the same to us. For example, in our worship service, we have specific elements that must be included based on the commands and prescriptions, prescriptions that are given to us by the apostles. Right? We have specific things that we must include in the worship service. That the hearing from God must be at the center of our time together, including both the reading of the word, 1 Timothy 4:13, and the preaching of the word, Titus chapter 4. We are also to sing to one another and to God, Ephesians chapter 5. We are to give God our gifts, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So uh, we are also to pray to God, to show our dependence upon Him. 
So we have some general instructions about what we ought to include in our worship service. Those elements are given to us. So for those, we don't just make up our own elements. We don't eliminate some elements because we don't like them as much or they, they're not as, as relevant to the people. We include in our service what God says to include in our service. But He doesn't tell us specifically how to do all those things. right? We have some general guidelines that we must obey, but, but think about it this way. Think about our prayer. I mean, we know that we are to pray when we meet together. We know we are to pray as believers, and we have scriptures that give us guardrails about what we should pray for and what we should not pray for. But, but the specific words are left to us, right? We don't just take a, a prayer from scripture and read it. We, we have some, some liberty, some creativity to pray how we think we ought to pray in keeping with God's will, in keeping with, with Jesus' name. How about when we sing? We know that we are to sing and we have guardrails as far as what is pleasing to God in our songs. But as far as which songs we sing each week, as far as which sing, songs we sing at all, we have the creativity, the leeway to be able to choose on our own what those are. So when it comes to something that's clear, sing, we sing. But what do we sing? God, God entrusts that kind of thing to us. Obviously, still recognizing the guardrails that he set up. Israel is embarking on an overwhelming trip. And they're moving from everything that their families had ever known to a place of uncertainty and potential danger. They're going to be out of their element, out of their comfort zone. But God has made it clear for the past year to Israel that He is on their side, that the ark and the glory cloud are symbols of His presence, that the manna is an expression of His provision, the tabernacle in the middle of the camp is a symbol that He's living among them and that He is seeking peace with them through this sacrificial system. And so through it all, here is what they can be sure about and what we can be sure about based on the promises that we have in Scripture. And that is this, in the midst of overwhelming circumstances, God is there. In the midst of overwhelming circumstances, God is there. God is the one who is in our camp, so to speak. God is the one who is in our midst. God is the one who goes out before us and leads us, who tells us where we ought to go. God is the one who protects us when we go because there are enemies outside and within that will rise up in our own midst and we need God to protect us. The battle that we fight is not primarily against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers of the darkness. So we need God to protect us because we're not stronger than the rulers of darkness. We have tools and weapons to help us but it requires our dependence upon God. And so we need God to be among us. We need God to lead us. We need God to protect us. We also need to know that God uses means like Hobab, a man who, who Moses employed effectively for the help in the work that, that he was given to do. And in the midst of overwhelming circumstances, we also know that God has a purpose for his people. God's presence and nearness and protection and provision and purpose for us as Christians today is not much different 
or are those things are not much different from from what it was for Israel. We have Jesus Christ who became flesh and lived among us and His presence remains with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And God has provided a way for us to come into His presence so that He would live among us. And that God does the same thing that He did to Israel. He offers a way for us to be reconciled to Himself so that He can live among us, so that He can go out before us, lead us through His Word. And we can be sure, like Israel, that He has a purpose for us. He has something good in store for us. And that as we go, He protects us. And God does all these things because He has set His love on us. He has chosen to bless us. He wants to come and live among us so that He can bless us. He loves us. And He wants to give us more of what is best for us, and that is Himself. And the knowledge of His greatness and His mercy on us. And so we, like Israel, have hope even in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. We go out into a world that is full of uncertainties. We know that God is on our side. And, and, and even here as we meet together, God is with us. He is our presence. He is our protector, our provider. And, and we will follow Him all the way. Let's pray. Father, would you lead us like a shepherd leads his sheep? Lord, we, we won't turn away from you, finally, because we trust in your promises. There will be times when we, we doubt you. There will be times when we go off and try to do things our own way. But because you have chosen us to be a part of your family, to be your sheep, then then, Lord, we will follow you all the way until the end. And the reason we know that is because you are faithful to your promise that you who began a good work in us will finish it. You'll continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, it is, that is our hope. Our hope is not in any works that we have done. It's not in anything that we've done since we've become a Christian. Those simply are fruits of what you've already done in us. Our hope was when we came to Christ that you are enough and that you are faithful to your promises and our hope now is the same. So we continue to look to you for guidance. Lord, make your presence known among us. Help us not to have that feeling that you are far away. Sometimes that feeling comes because of the sin that that creates a, a displeasure for you and, and, and creates a, a temporal boundary between us and you. And so Lord... Forgive us for our sins. Help us to turn away from them and and to be restored. But Lord, make us know your presence because we are confident in your promises. You are faithful. You you are the one who keeps us all the way till the end. So keep us in the love of Christ, we pray. And Lord, we pray that that those here who are going through overwhelming circumstances would, would have their confidence in you and know that you are near and that you care, and that you provide and protect, and that you will lead them safely home. Lord, even if we have to go through times of difficulty, or we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear, because you are with us. So Lord, be our strength and our guide, and help us to know uh, your care. 
Lord, for our church, we pray that you would help us to include and engage in each element of worship that is required of us and and then uh, do it with, with hearts that, that love you. Thank you for allowing us to be able to have some um, creativity in how we do these things. But Lord, we want to be faithful to your words. Help us to get better and improve in those areas as to what we sing and how we sing it, as to what we pray and how we pray it, what we hear from your word and how we respond, how we give. Lord, every part of our service, we want it to be in worship to you because you deserve our greatest worship. Lord, you are worthy of all the glory that is ascribed to your name. We praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.